Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 242 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday night, September 28th, 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I am winning our bet, baby. <laughs> I did not realize uh, just how badly I'd fallen off the pace. I mean, I, we were I doing well for like a while. Just... We sprinted out the gate with episode <laughs> 229 to start the year. Talked about, I believe the number is 30 recordings. I, think, I, I believe if we go back and check the tape, the number is 30, although I might have even let you have 20. But either way... We've not made as much progress as I would like. This, this uh, is our 14th episode of, of calendar year 2023. And, if, and our first, I think, since what, August 22nd? Yeah, we're, we, we're sort of a monthly right now. <laughs> Dang it. I, we, we had so many early on. I was, I was already planning where we might go eat. I mean, now I can plan where we might go eat. Let's go to Red Ash. Well, probably uh, soon. Yeah, I know. For oh, those who do not live here, yes. that's a really great place that recently burned down. Um, shoot, man. Uh, maybe maybe we can have some emergencies that lead to emergency <laughs> podcasts in, in great numbers. All I'm saying is if you try to pull like five emergency podcasts over winter break, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call a rat. I'm really, Steve, emergency pod time. A judge at Gitmo is retiring. <laughs> I think that'll that topic alone, if I can sell you on that, we can get like 17 episodes probably in the next couple of months. There, there actually has been a judge retirement at no, know. since our last every episode. Time, every time we turn around. <sighs> oh, man. All right. Well, well, anyway, I'm looking forward to winning the bet and cashing in. If not at Red Ash, then at one of Austin's other fine culinary nah, establishments. I really thought I had it, but I clearly do not. Um, all right. So what, are, what then are we going to talk about on this uh, monthly episode? Not the Mets, not the Giants. Not no, the no, no, no. We can talk. Uh, we'll have some good frivolity. We'll get to that in a second. Just quickly make sure it's worth your while to keep listening. We have an interesting Guantanamo Military Commission related development involving one of the 9-11 defendants. Um, we've got uh, Section 702, which we knew would be coming up more and more often as the end of the year comes near. And it's... it's uh, end game on whether it'll be renewed and if so with what new bells and whistles attached to it uh, a material contribution from our friends at the privacy and civil liberties oversight board the p club they've mm. put out uh the p club is a house divided which you know maybe that's a that's a early candidate for a show title oh i think we can do better i know we set the bar kind of low there it's Kind of a serious talk topic, but we've got a split. I mean, at the very, at the very least, you have to say it's a P-Club divided. It's a P. That's that's better. Nice. You should be in copywriting. Uh, <laughs> you should you should try writing something. You have a way with words. Hmm. Mm. If this whole uh, uh, podcasting thing doesn't work out for me, <laughs> or if it doesn't work out often enough, uh, perhaps your next book can be a choose your own adventure <laughs> or Mad Libs. Either one. The Supreme Court. Page one, grant certiorari. Page two, deny certiorari. Page if, three. If, if you would uh, issue the uh, emergency uh, relief, turn to page 47. <laughs> if, you, if you would accept the seat on the private plane because it would otherwise go unused, turn to page 91. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, in, in Choose Your Own Adventures, you know, you're always like, I, the main thing was just to keep the story going. 
it was always a bummer when you made your choice and if you're playing it by the book and you actually turned fully and you saw the drawing yep. and you knew and the drawing in the end you're like oh crud and it was either something kind of scary because you'd made the fatal choice or it was something idyllic so, but, so maybe but, but, but it was over either way it was over either way i yeah. always i always kept a finger like back where i made the choice so i could get back there and reverse it if i needed to you know kobayashi maru's file interesting Ooh, reference that would make a good, uh, you know, cheating the system. Um, Although, have you have, have you have you read the have you read the book version of Kobayashi? Have you read the Kobayashi Maru book? Is it? Do you mean like a? So short answer is no. Is it a book? Just the book version of Star Trek Two or a no? Book, a, a book about? Oh, is it? Is so it good? so there is you know you know how like there are all these Star Trek books. Um, so yeah, one of the never read a Star Trek book. I might have had a point in my life where I read lots of Star Trek books. Um, I read Star Wars books. It's all right. So I want to say somewhere in the 40s in the sequencing, there's a book called The Kobayashi Maru, which is basically, it, Bobby, it's set in the original series time frame, but right. it's, a, it's a retrospective where like Kirk and I want to say Scotty and Chekhov and maybe Sulu... Um, are stuck on a shuttlecraft and like they're each retelling the story of how they dealt with the Kobayashi Maru. Oh, nice. Okay. It's really, really, right. it's really, it's really, it's good fun. And so, so the Kirk story is faithful to the, you know, to the sort nice. of, it gets increasingly interesting, but, but the, the, the Scotty and Chekhov and Sulu versions are actually quite interesting. So the Rashomon effect you know, way of doing things is, is an invitation to frivolity because there's a great question, you know, whether books or movies, what are one's favorite, same story told from multiple viewpoints? Um, do you, does anything come to mind for you real quick under that heading? Same story told from multiple viewpoints. I'm, I, you know, I, I, there are some really good ones off the top of my head. I'm not thinking about, although that's not, you know, this is actually different stories, right? It's just the same scenario. It's just the same. Uh, oh, but no, but but we're telling the same events from each character's different viewpoint. You no, know, but that's but that actually. So this is actually how each of the characters themselves, right, went through the Kobayashi Maru test. Oh, I thought you meant that they were all reflecting on a common experience. No, no, no. They're, so they're all reflecting on their different challenges. Um, so the book was published in 1989. It's by Julia Eklar. Nice. Um, and it's, 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 I was right. It's in the 40s. It's, it's book 47 in the, okay. in the Star Trek book sequencing. I'm embarrassed. Okay. I, I'm a little embarrassed. I actually remember that it was in the 40s. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm neither surprised, and I am proud of you. Um, I'm going to definitely read that. You know, you got me thinking about. Uh, Related thing, one of my favorite things I've read. It's right up there behind me. John Scalzi, Red Shirts. Have you ever read this? I know of it. I haven't read it. Okay. Move that to the top. First of all, everything by John Scalzi is great. But Red Shirts is really up your alley. You're going to love it. I'm and excited. I bet many listeners are saying, yes, that's right. Others are saying, would you guys please get on to the National Security Law? So in addition to Guantanamo, the P-Club on 702 – we're going to touch base on the question of uh, disqualification of former President Trump under the 14th Amendment, a little, a little check-in on that topic. And uh, Supreme Court will be starting up soon, so we're going to do a, a modest amount of previewing the upcoming term of the court. I think that'll be plenty. Uh, we're recording late. Both of us are getting tired. 
And um, we got to get to the frivolity, of course, because next week, not on the same night, but the musical Six is in town. And uh, Steve, you're going to see it next weekend. I'll see it next Tuesday. So we'll talk a little bit musicals, and then we'll we'll complement that with a little NFL discussion, and that surely will be enough. I'm Henry VIII. I am Henry VIII. I am. I am. This will be uh, this will be Knuff. All right, uh, should we jump in with some Guantanamo? If we must. <laughs> this podcast is Knuff. Huh. Yeah, that work. We're getting better. Keep yeah, I, I feel like there's there's got to be a Henry VIII joke coming along somewhere. Yeah, I know. Keep Let that percolate. Yeah. Okay, um, what's happening with Ramzi bin al-Sheib? Yeah, this is, this, is a, this is kind of a big deal. Ace defendants. What's going on? So... Um, how do I how do I put this delicately? Um, so because a medical pa- there was after years and years and years and years and years and years of litigation, um, right? Bin Al Sheib, who's one of the five defendants that's you know part of the 9/11 trial, um, was you know finally deemed by a medical panel. Um, to basically be incompetent to stand trial because his torture at the hands of the CIA left him psychotic um, and in other sort of various dissociated states. Um, And this led the military judge, who at least for the moment is still presiding over the 9-11 case. Um, The the initial headline was to sever him, right, from the 9-11 case. Um, But in practical effect, I mean, he's now not prosecutable. Um, unless the government tries to, you know, appeal those determinations, which it's going to have a heck of a time doing. So, Bobby, one of the five 9-11 defendants, barring some appellate intervention, is now not going to be prosecuted, it seems. What a freaking train wreck. Uh, do you th- Just to talk about what's – assume that any attempt at appeal ultimately proves fruitless, it seems to me pretty obvious that he then shifts – out of MilCon proceedings and is simply held on an ongoing basis, as are a few others still, as an enemy combatant. And and this whole time, for those who followed along, the most obvious thing is that there has always been a baseline claim, not that you're all being held pre-trial and that's the only reason we're holding you, but everyone is held as an enemy combatant. The U.S. government still has not uh, accepted or, or certainly asserted that the armed conflict phase with Al-Qaeda is, in fact, over, notwithstanding, you know, for example, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, And there are other detainees who are not in the queue for military commission prosecution, whose detention is based on what most Guantanamo detention has been based on all along, the idea of detaining enemy combatants while the hostilities continue. Now, that doesn't mean he won't then either right away or eventually have what maybe even would be a successful at some point uh, habeas, renewed habeas action, challenging the claim that there's still an armed conflict. That you know, every year that goes by, there's more and more likelihood that sooner or later somebody's going to win one of those. But uh, do you think that's right? That that's the likeliest case? I mean, I I don't see how this this isn't the kind of problem you can solve by saying, all right, him will bring ashore and we'll prosecute in an Article Three court. That that's not going to fix this. No, I, I think that's right. I, I think the interesting question is whether. Any of what's happened with the medical panel and, you know, sort of his other proceedings bears upon which category he falls into on the detention side, right? Like, does he become, you know, the fourth of the detainees 
um, who's on the sort of pure detention side, Bobby, but who has not been cleared for transfer or where I was going. Right. Or is it possible that like he actually now because of his condition could actually meet the criteria for transfer if appropriate security conditions are present under the, you know, the still extant periodic review board process. Yeah. I see like zero chance that any current or prospective president would, would sign off on that deal. Even if in their heart of hearts, they thought, look, the guy's so incapacitated that literally speaking, there's not particular security risk. Um, the idea that someone linked so intimately to the 9-11 attacks themselves might get that. I just think as a predictive matter, there's just no chance it's going to happen. I don't know. I, I think there's no chance it's going to happen before next November. Um, as we've said that, before. That's for sure. All <laughs> uh, right. As, as we said I'm, before. I'm not, I mean, I'm not a politi- actually, I mean, I, some people say that I'm a politician because I'm a dean now. I'm not a politician. <laughs> I'm sure not a political advisor. But even I know that I would not advise a candidate for president to uh, sign off on that deal. I, I just I do wonder, you know, in a world in which President Biden is reelected, what the political circumstances look like, um, you know, in January 2025. But that's so a like, long way I, from now. The best I could say for that possibility, you know, to try to suggest there could become room is all hell has broken loose so completely in other ways that it's like, yeah, it well, flies under the radar. Yeah, right. I I just don't think it's likely, and in in part because I my guesstimation of Biden's own personal view of this is that he himself would find this you know, extremely unacceptable as well. I mean, he has, I, you know, I don't know where he's at on counterterrorism as a topic today, but certainly back in the day, he was somewhat fire breathing, certainly for, for a Democrat. Yeah. On um, speaking of congressional solutions to complicated national security law topics. <laughs> is, is that our segue to section 702 things that probably aren't going to happen is that <laughs> well i mean i you know 702 i mean this is an interesting question about whether seven where 702 reform falls on the probably not going to happen I think, I, by the way just for the record uh i think 702 renewal will happen in the whole question i mean there could there be a little delay action where we go through some awkward period in january maybe but I really it's just it's so it would be so insane to actually let the whole thing lapse because of all the other insanity that goes on. Of course, it's 2023. That probably doesn't really. That I mean, I gonna, Bob, Bobby, they're about to shut down the government for well, God's sake. All the time. It's happened plenty of times before. It has not. Uh, it, I am not aware of a prior situation where it happened because of intra-party squabbling as opposed to but fundamental breakdown between. Yeah, the political causes may be uh, distinctive in this instance, um, which just goes to show you that we are some, something we already know. We're in this phase in which um, we've kind of got multipolarity in the system instead of bipolarity in the political system. Uh, above all, as the GOP you know has its civil war or whatever it is that's going on. Um, but coming back to 702, so let's make sure everybody's <laughs> on board. On board here. Um, Bobby's like, and now let's stop talking about the Republicans. Well, yeah. Well, it's not. I don't think too many people tune in for our, our political acumen. They probably tune in for yours. I, they sure don't turn in for mine. No, no. Although I will just say that a government shutdown is not an irrelevant topic to a podcast on national security. Happy to talk about that. Um, but all right. But, but, but yeah, let's talk about seven hundred two. That, that that'll be our fifteenth episode of twenty twenty three. Maybe maybe this is a, I should not run from the. Maybe the way I'm going to lure you into losing the bet 
is to finally give way and say like, all right, fine, let's just talk about politics completely. <laughs> we'll, we'll be like, okay, I'm game to talk about Texas politics now, but we're going to have to have a 20 show sequence before December 31st. Ken Paxton, go. Yeah, uh, we might need 20 shows. Um, okay, section 702. Some people are listening saying, guys, what what is that? <laughs> Explain it. Long-time listeners uh, who are not specialists in the area have heard us talk about it many times before. Uh, we've done a deep dive on this. I'm not going to go back into all the weeds of it. Just the real quick reminder. This is a federal statute. Um, it Its roots really go back in statutes to 2006, but it's it's been Section 702 since enactment in 2008. The whole idea boils down to this. We have a foreign intelligence uh, collection apparatus, uh, mostly in the hands of the NSA. Um, by and large, this this exists to collect foreign intelligence information. And historically speaking, in sort of a 20th century perspective, by and large, you're looking outside the United States at non-U.S. persons. So picture your proverbial Cold War radar dish located overseas, pointed at Central Asia, trying to pick up uh, Soviet military communications or that sort of thing. Um, but of course, it's always been more complicated than that. There are communications that come in and out of the United States. There are foreign intelligence relevant things. In fact, some of the most exigent of them going on within the United States. Complicated 20th century history. See whole case books and, and episodes of the show where we talk about different aspects of that history. It, by 1978, you get the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which tries to kind of manage the situation in which there's something happening foreign intelligence collection-wise of a technical electronic surveillance nature with strong U.S. person privacy equities, either because of who the target is, where the target is, or where the collection's taking place. And the idea was the NSA and, and others uh, can go on about their business without judicial involvement and, and sort of legalization of the process when they're overseas doing things entirely outward-facing. Uh, but if you're doing things that are targeting a U.S. person in the inside the United States or you're collecting from within the United States, you know, tapping wires here, then you need to go get the uh, what is sort of a parallel to a to a search warrant. You go to the, the newly created FISA court. You make your individualized probable cause showing that the target you're after is or there's probable cause to believe they're an agent of a foreign power and that they're using this facility to communicate and you're off to the races over time. Little complexities become more and more salient, such as what about the situation where it's definitely a non-U.S. person? They're definitely outside the U United States, but they're using uh, whatever the equivalent of Gmail would have been many years back. Uh, in, in other words, there's a U.S. company perfectly willing and able to cooperate if you provide it with legal process that covers them. Um, and man, instead of having to do super dangerous collection activities overseas, you could just directly access the inbox uh, and originally after 9-11 complicated story but there's non-statutory versions of this sort of stuff that starts happening the idea when you hear 702 that you want to have in mind is that congress eventually said hey this actually is useful but let's put proper legal safeguards and oversight around it we'll ask nsa fbi and others who are sort of involved in this system to come up with various institutionalization uh, software, training, oversight, management tools that they can, they can all be described to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court on a once a year basis to document how as a compliance matter, 
this capability will indeed be directed towards non-US persons outside the United States. And as long as the institutional bureaucratization of this passes muster in the eyes of the FISA court, one year at a time, they basically bless it. And with that one year blessing, um, you can go to companies with qualifying targets. Again, non-US persons believed to be outside the United States. You can go to them and uh, get, indeed, compel the cooperation of the US-based companies. Some of those companies are the communication service providers that people have accounts with from outside the United States. Some of them are companies in the internet backbone business who are in a unique position to uh, scoop traffic, looking for key terms. Um, and that's, that's basically the model. Now, the key thing for listeners to understand is there are extremely important, always to be revisited, important policy questions about do we want that form of collection at all? Is it valuable? If so, what are the risks and downsides associated with it, especially for U.S. person privacy sort of on a collateral basis? And, and what kind of institutional safeguards are sufficient to let us get the value while managing the risks enough? And we have to ask that at the collection stage, which is the core business of 702. But over the years, we've come to appreciate that there's a second stage issue that's really interesting. And if anything, has even more U.S. person privacy implications because 702 collection, once it's underway, produces a database of results that can be and is basically designed to be queried with phone numbers, email addresses, names, whatever it is that the investigators and the analysts are looking for, you could query with U.S. person names, companies, individuals, phone numbers, email addresses that are not the targets. That's what we're talking about. We're now talking about the stage after the targets have been identified and let's assume properly identified and the collection's taking place. And now you're holding a annual storehouse of data from 702 collection and various NSA analysts, CIA analysts, whoever, and FBI investigators from time to time in pursuit of their responsibilities think, oh, I'd like to run a query of that database to see what I get. And so this question of querying the database, making use of the information post-collection with U.S. person queries is itself become one of the central issues. There's other issues, but Steve, do you agree that the, the front-end collection and the second stage of querying are the main policy focal points. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there are sort of accountability piece and redress pieces, but I think they both sort of flow from yeah, those first right. two things. Yeah. So, so most, mostly as we're trying to do the policy analysis here, which of course is where we're going, um, it's helpful to remember there's not one thing here we're talking about. We're talking about a couple of separate pieces and it's perfectly coherent to say, all right, I, I'm satisfied that we've got a, a legal and policy desirable system at stage one, but I actually don't think we have it yet right for stage two. You can feel the reverse. You could like them both. You could hand them both. All those, all those options on a two by two grid are available as a matter of logic and intellectual you know, coherence. Well, this is all coming to a head because it always has a sunset since it's been created. It's been renewed a few times, always with some additional, you know, every, every renewal is a moment of forcing where whatever the politics of the moment will bear creates space for policy changes and tweaks. 
And then in between these occasional moments of sunset-driven legislative reconsideration, we occasionally get these disclosures, uh, usually from the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court saying, okay, well, the public, we're, we're now notifying y'all that we found these compliance issues. And, and FBI in particular has come in for a lot of heat on the compliance side. So the idea there is you can have all the rules on paper looking good, but there's always this assumption when you're analyzing rules on paper that they're basically being complied with. If you find non-compliance in actual practice, you have a whole nother set of issues about how the rules ought to be enough, but alas, they prove not to be. So we're going to need additional rules or changes or maybe get rid of the whole thing because of the compliance problems as they creep up. So you throw into the mix the, uh, I, revert, I adverted earlier to the GOP civil war. One of the ways that manifests or one of the ways in which multipolarity in our politics is manifested is um, sharp divisions within the GOP. And I would add on the Democrat side too, um, about the, the balance between privacy and security and these types of things. So historically, you could kind of count on the Republicans to be pretty enthusiastic about supporting um, these types of institutions and their statutory toolkits. Um, definitely not the case these days. In fact, the biggest problems for 702 renewal arguably come from within the GOP, but there's a coalition here. It's, it's bipartisan in that sense. Okay, so a lot of people are wondering what's going to happen because on December 31st, that's it for 702 unless it gets renewed. Um, Steve, the you want, you want to say a few words about what the PCLOB is and, and what, why do we use that funny word? Who are these people and what do we care about what they have to say? Sure. I mean, so the, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board was established. Was it IRTPA or was it later? I don't remember when exactly it was established. But, Good question. Um, I think it was IRTPA. The, Intelligence uh, Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. Um, it's hard to keep track of all these things, and, I, and I'm too lazy to look it up. Um, anyway, but so PCLOB is a sort of government oversight agency that has five board members who are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And Bobby Peclaw basically exists as a sort of um, a mechanism for looking at and keeping tabs on the, you know, the surveillance, the foreign intelligence surveillance programs in the United States. Um, the board members have security clearances. They're read into, I think, most of the United States foreign intelligence surveillance collection activities, and they're in a position to release both classified and unclassified reports as they study, you know, how different of the authorities used by the federal government um, have been implemented. You know, I, I think their original report on the 215 program was quite significant. I think their their original report on the 702 program was quite significant, and this is their sort of long overdue update. Um, on the 702 program. Yeah, exactly. This is a, an entity that may not have been around that long, but it's had lots of credibility for its uh, its prior work. They've got the receipts. They've done over time. But of course, you know, it's, it's a variety of members. Our, our current colleague and dear friend, Adam Klein, professor at UT and head of the Strauss Center, which you know, is the show's sponsor, mm-hmm. hey, Adam, uh, <laughs> uh, was the chairman of the peak lob until recently so the five current members sharon bradford franklin is chair currently ed felton is on the board travis leblanc beth williams and richard dezino um they have 
you know, everybody's expecting them to weigh in. Indeed, it really is incumbent on them in this kind of context for P-Club to weigh in. Um, for better or worse, though, and perhaps maybe most of all as a sign of the times, it's a it's a almost a three-way split on the U.S. person issue for queries that I was talking about a moment ago. So it's a divided product here. So obviously, any entity like this will be best off in terms of acceptance of its recommendations if it's unanimous, whether it's a court, whether it's a government entity, that's generally true. Um, and there's just there's just too much disagreement. There's some core disagreement here on certain matters. Although it's it's worth pausing to note something that I think you and I kind of have long since you know come to understand, uh, but maybe not everyone does. Um, the five of them are very divided on the privacy dimensions of U.S. person queries and, and other safeguard matters. But all five of them unanimously agree that on the most fundamental question of all, is the is the front end collection through 702 of, of the information that 702 has been gathering is it important? It is a resounding unanimous. Yes, it's extremely important. This is very important for counterterrorism, for understanding the activities of peers like China and Russia and, and their activities um, in relation to um, handling our mounting cyber challenges and, and other things. So th there seems to be like zero doubt that this thing's valuable. Um, the question's not, is it valuable? It's what additional safeguards and improvements to the process used to, to help us live with it, because we need to have it. Um, what should they be? And they, they do disagree about a variety of things, but the place to me that's most interesting is this core issue of at the querying the database stage, should we preserve the status quo? Should we? They, they seem to all agree, actually, some things should change. Even even the, the two dissenters out of the five uh, agree that there's some reforms needed. In, in particular, you, you might even argue the two dissenters are kind of harsher about FBI culture of compliance than, than the three uh, that supported the majority result here. But... They, they fundamentally disagree about whether to subject U.S. person querying to an ex-ante judicial review process through FISA on the front end. And even for the three members who do think that should be added, uh, as opposed to leaving it to be something overseen by management checks and balances, uh, even the ones who, are, who want to see the FISA court get involved, there's a two-to-one split between the three of them as to whether as to how to calibrate the burden of proof with, uh, I guess, I guess it's Ed and Travis would have it be that the current internal bureaucratic standard that amounts to sort of a, a reasonable basis for believing that the, the U.S. person identifier or phone number or what have you that you're going to use as the seed for the, the query is either going to lead to uh, foreign intelligence information or if it's the FBI that it's either foreign intel or evidence of a crime. Uh, they would leave that there as and simply involve the FISA court and also it by implication the Justice Department lawyers who litigate before the FISA court. They would create that layer of bureaucracy before you could actually pull the trigger using that standard. Sharon would go further and it would elevate the burden of proof, so it's also a tougher standard, but it would also be administered by the FISA court. Steve, do you, is that about a fair assessment of the contending recommendations? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should, though, I'd like to take a minute to underscore the stakes. Um, 
Because one of the things that really struck me about the report, Bobby, and this is a factual point on which I don't think there's any disagreement, is just how many of these so-called backdoor searches there are. Um, well, yeah. Okay. So we're going to have to backdoor is, of course, the pejorative term for describing it all because it implies it implies that you're trying to get something that you really shouldn't be able to get. But so thinking- one, I said. So first, I said so-called. But second, all right. If we're going to do this, let's do this. Right. The whole point of 702, the way 702 was sold, the way it got through Congress was because the targeting. Right. That you specifically can't use 702 to target U.S. persons. Right. You agree with that. Yeah. Okay. No, that's obviously the, the central fact of 702 is you can't target U.S. persons or anyone in the United States either. Right. Not a US person. Okay. But so the, the reason why the term backdoor searches has caught on is because when you have a statutory collection authority that is specifically designed so that you can't use it to target U.S. persons or people reasonably believed to be in the United States, and yet the government knowingly goes into the take from that collection authority to search for communications of U.S. persons or persons known to be in the United States or reasonably to be in the United States, that sure feels like a backdoor to me. Um, so here's, but- here's why I disagree, or what, let me be more nuanced than that. Here's why I think that it should, it's more nuanced than that. And so in insofar as anyone feels that backdoor is a characterization that kind of builds with it a sense of impropriety, I, I think it has to be analyzed a little more carefully. So targeting is not being accomplished. Targeting a person as a term of art entails making them the authorized subject of of whatever collection you can get, right? Like their communications, you're going to hose up all their collection, all their communications, you can get them. So when somebody is a legitimate target for 702 collection, you can go try to get their whole inbox from Gmail, et cetera. When you query at the the second stage, when when you use a US person's seed to go into the database, you're getting nothing like what you would get if you were actually targeting the person. Now, the reason I'm not I'm not saying like so that's you're wrong. I agree that there's something that could lead someone who's uh, concerned about it enough to say, well, it's still backdoor in that there shouldn't be any U.S. person stuff going on. Okay, I totally get that, but I just want to make sure the listeners are grasping that when the query takes place, you're not you're not getting you know the U.S. person's inbox. Uh, you're not getting all that stuff. You're getting whatever the targets communications that, that ended up in the database insofar as your name, your phone number, whatever is in there, if there's a hit. And, and the documents that were released from Peak Lab show that there's almost never actually a hit, which is an interesting fact. But if there's a hit, you're going to get an incidental piece of it right there. But it's not the same. All right. I, I don't think the term incidental is fair either, though. I mean, if we're going to be persnickety about terminology, if you are literally querying a database using a U.S. person identifier, right, at that, like, yes, maybe the the initial collection of the U.S. person's communications may have been incidental. Once you're querying for that person's identifier, there's nothing incidental about what you're doing. When I was referring to incidental, I was talking about, I mean, that that's the universally used term for when say the backbone collections going on in in housing up i know but but this is my point bobby which is it's the second like yes i agree that when the initial collection is happening through the 702 certification right collection of u.s persons communications is incidental it has to be or else it's illegal 
right? Um, my, My point is, I don't think you can continue to use that term once we're talking about the second stage query of the database using the U.S. person identifier. There's I, I nothing incidental about that. that. I, was, I wasn't trying. If I did use it that way, I, didn't, I was not being precise. So I totally, but, that's the pro- but, but to me, that's the problem, right? Which is that the mentality that I think had persisted for a while was that because the initial collection is incidental, there is no additional privacy. And right, this is it's a it's yeah, a, it's running, a that, that water's under the bridge. They already now have in place lots of constraints. The question is, is it enough that the constraints are internal bureaucratic or is it necessary in order to, to achieve the privacy goals? And and, and this is where I think the, and this is and this is where I think the factual stuff in the 702 report is actually really important because what it suggests is that this is happening a lot, um, and it's happening a lot in defiance of what are supposed to be the internal constraints on these kinds of queries, especially from certain agencies, um, right? I mean, and so, like, it seems to me that you know the the the. the We've been having this debate about 702 at least since 2013 in the aftermath of the you know Snowden revelations. And it seems like if 10 years has not necessarily produced a rapid improvement in compliance on the government's part, that seems to suggest that there's, you know, leaving this to the government to sort of police itself has not necessarily worked wonders in this space. I think it would be helpful to listeners if we were more clear about what the this is happening a lot is right because I'm, I'm worried that somebody might think so they're they're turning 702 collection on u.s persons no we're not talking about collection i think we agree on that right no one's claiming and there's no evidence that that in in violation of the targeting rules 702 collection is taking place targeting u.s persons the the, the debate we're talking about is that the okay stuff's been collected and now people are very purposely putting in U.S. person queries sometimes, yes. and we're trying to figure out what what the landscape of of compliance is there. Do we agree on that? I mean, I th- yes, with the understanding that targeting is a that you are using targeting in a very specific way that I agree with, but that may not necessarily be the way everyone understands the term. Well, that's why I was trying to get into it earlier. Is I think it's really important people understand. Targeting is a term of art here that means I know. Okay, I've got permission to use 702. No, no, I'm agreeing with you. Okay, all right. So, so we're talking about the the very different stage of the querying, and the the question now is so. Okay, let's be precise about the array of possible policy reasons that could lead somebody to either say, you know what, no U.S. person period queries. Period. I mean, that's an available position that some people do take, right? And that would that would certainly does anyone be- does anyone seriously take that position? I'm sure somebody does. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to make empirical claims here, but I'll just I, say I'm not I'm not even surely, sure. Surely you I'm don't not- deny that somebody's taking that position somewhere. I'm just trying I'll, to map the. the I will I will map. just say that even 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 the privacy and civil liberties groups that have been the most vociferous about what they would call the problem of backdoor searches, I think, still acknowledge that there are at least some sure. circumstances. Look, I'm not, I, you know me. I'm not trying to set up a straw man. I'm just trying to start a discussion. So yeah, if I okay. back where I was, okay. we have a spectrum of possible positions someone could take. Let's just make it purely hypothetical. Hypothetically, somebody might say, you know what? This is an invasion of privacy. Don't do it. 
And someone kick me at the other end, and there are people at the other end say, like, it's perfectly fine. It's it's already too constrained. There are people who feel it's too constrained already. So the space in the debate is the serious debate is between that, trying to figure out whether some particular good can be earned at an appropriate cost by switching from a model that we currently have, in which you have to have a reasonable basis either towards foreign intelligence collection goals or if you're FBI only towards crime investigation goals, and then you can run the US person query. And should we try to achieve whatever this benefit is by having the process run through the courts? And by the way, it's not just the courts, you have to go to main DOJ now, and then to the court, FISA court. And the analysis of that, I think requires us to be really clear about like, what exactly is it that it's happening that's a problem that needs to be fixed? Um, you could have a problem of bad faith abuse. I don't think the report rests on claims of that kind. It seemed to me in reading it that the majority's position, it's not based on claiming that, you know, it's it's sort of Nixon and Watergate out there. It seems to be, in fact, you know, accepting like people, people mean well, but there's non-compliance there. There's poor training. There's been there's been a situation for a while existed in which, as you and I were talking about earlier today, the software sort of opted in when you did the sort of the collective search all databases. It, it automatically included that instead of automatically excluding it. Um, and then in a couple of cases, rogue employees like the one guy who was was found in two instances to have look, tried to look up somebody who was trying to date you know, a person who was fired. Um, does that sound right that we're talking about how to best police against poor management, poor compliance oversight, particularly at the FBI? Yeah, although I guess I also worry about the abuse case, but I recognize that that's less prevalent. Yeah, I mean, we and I think I hope everybody worries about the abuse case because that's yeah. like by far the most serious risk. Yeah, I think you and I agree that descriptively that that's not. Happening. Yes, but but but, but, but one should never stop worrying about it because it would be much right. worse than mere. But turn but 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 I mean, hasn't our experience, Bobby, been that every time the government says, you know, we're we're implementing new procedures to 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 minimize compliance errors, and we're implementing new training regimes to make sure that people know what the rules are, we find out after the fact that those procedures were inadequate and that those training regimes were unsuccessful. I mean, it just, it just seems like we have enough experience now with these kinds of defenses of internal procedures in the FISA context, where it's just like, at some point, I, 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 if, I don't know. If the record was that the problem is as bad today and in, in the same today as it was in the past, I think there'd be powerful reasons to say just as you say like something big has to change this time no more incremental change because we're not getting any results i think the record shows that there continue to be problems but but it but there's an arc here there's a trajectory of improved compliance that is pretty substantial and i'm not saying and you notice i haven't said yet what i think about what ought to happen um but i do think there's there's a need for nuance that's hard to find in this debate. And I think you can get it by comparing the different positions in the PCLOB report. Um, the, uh, I think it's very telling that no one of the five, and here's another place all five of them agree, none of them think that FBI in particular, it's kind of consistent with your point, I think, 
because even the dissenters are saying, like FBI just doesn't have a compliance culture as much as they should on this issue. They, in the record, and they're saying the record shows this, right? Um, and I think they pointedly contrast it with NSA. And I think it's a very powerful and telling institutional comparison. I, I do believe that for, for, you know, NSA's had its cock-ups too. It's non-compliance, management, software challenges. But the, the trajectory there has been remarkable over the past decade. Um, and and the, the nature of the problems have just been smaller. It, it is important, I think, to highlight that the problems FBI continues uh, to experience, none of them, as far as I know, involve something except for the rogue employees who are flat out like trying to get around the rules in a, in a very direct way. The stuff that seems to be people doing their job and doing it wrong, which is the vast majority of the compliance issues. Um, as, again, I, I see no evidence that any of it's bad faith. And so I think it's an important, but yet in a certain way, kind of a boring institutional design challenge. Um, there's no question that if you level of, if we imagine the level of process required to be able to do a US person query as being on a dial of procedural burden, the, the more you turn the dial, the less mis uh, over-inclusive use of it you're gonna have. If we involve the FISA court, that's definitely gonna put into place additional oversight, additional bodies, the, the attorneys at DOJ who handle these cases, not to mention the FISA process itself, the FISC process itself, that will definitely have, have a really powerful, substantial change. Um, so that's good. But we do need to acknowledge there will be a cost to that too. So it, it kind of then brings us over to the side of the equation where we measure, what are we losing here? I think you could argue like, well, we're going to now have false negatives. I don't know about that. I don't think that's actually likely at all. I do think it's clearly uh, an expense, but in the grand scheme of things, that probably shouldn't drive the analysis entirely. Um, the best argument for saying there's an offsetting cost that maybe outweighs that enhanced uh, compliance gain is the speed loss. And as to that, the recommendations are full of talk about, look, we can have exigency exemptions. Um, we could have an exemption for a situation where you get the consent. When it's a protective use of the US person identity, you can have the person consent affirmatively to be able to uh, allow the government to do this without going to the court. Um, I think it's a really tough predictive and empirical question about just how disruptive in these cases would it be if FBI was, this is all about FBI, that they were not able to uh, into the database, but had to contact main DOJ and put together paperwork and then get someone to go into the court process. It clearly would slow things down. Um, and the majority in the dissent disagree about the efficacy of an exigent circumstances exception to ameliorate that problem. The dissent saying like, you just won't know, you won't be able to really make the case, but it, you know, you're gonna, we should err on the side of assuming it's all pretty evident, given the kind of situations we're talking about. It's sort of unknowable, but I, I find the dissent's position pretty persuasive. I'll note too, I said a moment ago, this is really all about the FBI, but as I read the dissent, they were pointing out that the change I think is being proposed in a more sweeping way. I don't know if that's right or not. I'm not close enough to the details. Uh, it does seem to me that it's potentially problematic if the change hits all the foreign intelligence agencies, not just the FBI. 
if the case for making the change is based only on the FBI. <laughs> I guess I mean I I have a whole lot of things to say in response to that, but I also yeah. I also don't want to sort of um, to say the same things over again. So I think it's worth stressing that somewhere in this conversation we ought to talk about the Fourth Amendment, yeah. <laughs> which has been yeah. strangely missing from this conversation to this point. And maybe because you know, there's no Fourth Amendment search. <sighs> I'm just messing with you at this point. Y'all, y'all can't see us. Steve looks so tired and exasperated with me right now. It's wonderful. Perhaps the answer is that at the point at which the FBI is querying the 702 take for U.S. person information, the foreign intelligence surveillance exception to the warrant clause, which, by the way, the Supreme Court has never specifically endorsed, um, means that it doesn't need a warrant right? But it still needs to be reasonable, um, right? Like at the very, even without the warrant, the foreign intelligence surveillance exception is not an exception to the fourth amendment. It's just an exception to the warrant clause. Right. But that only comes into play if it is a search. I'm not saying it's absolutely clearly not a search, but that's a serious question. When the information's already been collected and is residing in the government's database and a government employee is going to access the database, run, run the term, it's, it's a serious question. Like, is that actually a search as a term of art, thus triggering the need for the reasonableness. To I mean, I just, I, I mean, I, I so, <laughs> so if the answer is no, then now we're at this really bizarre situation where at the moment at which the government is quote, searching a U.S. person's information, they're actually specifically barred from targeting the U.S. person. And then at the moment where they're actually singling out the U.S. person, now we're saying it's not a search. Like there's an element of sort of, you know, heads we win, tails you lose to that analysis to me. You might, I think I need you to unpack that for me. I, I didn't follow you through it. The whole conceit of the statutory regime is that you can't target U.S. persons. The yes. reason why you can't target U.S. persons is because if you were to target U.S. persons, you would have to satisfy the Fourth Amendment. Absolutely, right? because that would be collection. And so what you're saying is that the government can knowingly collect millions of U.S. persons' communications in a context in which they don't have to satisfy the Fourth Amendment, right? Because they're not targeting the U.S. persons. And then once they've gotten around the Fourth Amendment at time one by knowingly but not target, by knowingly collecting without targeting U.S. persons' communications, when they actually do target the U.S. person at time two, now it's not a search because the information's already in their possession, even though they weren't allowed to target the U.S. person at the moment of collection. I'm pretty sure what I said was, this is a serious question, a question where there's information already collected, presumptively legally, but we can debate that if you want. But when it's already collected using the front end, the main part of 702, and it's in the government's database, or if it's collected in some other way, it's FISA Title I surveillance. But this is my point, which is that this is not... The point being, if it's already information in the government's hands, and government agents are now trying to look at it, it's an interesting and real question. I'm not trying to argue with them. I'm trying to say this is a real serious question. Maybe it is a search because it's a U.S. person query when that wasn't your basis for collecting it originally. However, it's 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 clearly not obviously so such that you can't dispute it. This is like one of the major things everyone in this area debates is, is it a search at that stage? If it is, by the way, 
then then the proposal that the majority of the board that Ed and Travis are supporting is is unconstitutional because it's not strong enough because it's not reaching the level of probable cause. They're proposing that the FISA judge simply examine for whether there's a reasonable basis, reasonable connection. I, I disagree because, again, if you believe that there, you can believe that it is both a search and that it is a search to which the foreign intelligence surveillance exception to the warrant clause applies, which I think is where Ed and Travis are, by the way. Maybe, maybe so. I, I don't know where they are on that issue. I'm can I, can I, but, but I, so, so my exasperation is that this is exactly why people like me use the term backdoor searches, because in essence, what you're so the view that you are summarizing that I'm not saying you endorse, but with which I vehemently disagree, right, is a view that the government is conducting a search at time one when all agree that it couldn't conduct the search if it were targeting U.S. persons, right? Sure. And once it has conducted that search at time one, knowing that it was going to collect U.S. person information, nothing stops it at time two from now targeting those US, uh, a specific U.S. person in going through the take from what it collected at time one, because at time two, now it's not a search. Like that's, that's it, exactly the- I would the, be totally with you if what was going on was the government at point in time one really wishes it could have- John Doe, American citizens, communications, but it knows it can't pull it off on the front end. But it thinks, ah, but if I if I just go out and get non-US person X's information and everyone else's, someone there's probably some John Doe information too. Sweet. At stage two, I'm now going to be able to get their information. But that's that's not remote. There's no evidence that that's what's going on here. I don't think anybody's claiming. Can I ask you a question? Does anything does anything in current law prohibit the government from doing that? Yes, that would literally be that would be reverse targeting, and that would be forbidden expressly by the terms of the statute. And you could argue if that if you knew if you could prove that was the mindset, then it seems to me you got a Fourth well, Amendment violation I mean, too. You're never you're, ne- you're one. You're never going to prove it's the mindset. But two, how is it a Fourth? You asked me what my position. But but, was. but, but Bobby, how could, how is it a Fourth Amendment violation if the second thing isn't a search? Because under your hypothetical or the version I set forth that you said you yeah, were talking yeah, about now, yeah, yeah. it was all a fraud. That it was designed to be a but the second, but the second thing why, is still not this a search. Is why the phrase backdoor to me has a connotation that the fix is in. That it let's let's simplify it. If if backdoor mean if it meant to everybody that it was all bad faith, it was all set up, you, you knew what you wanted, you couldn't get it, but this is the way to get it. Um, then backdoor would be the right word for it. But there's zero evidence that that's what's going on. What we're talking about is a situation where the front-end information is all collected, as far as we can tell, entirely in good faith. And then once in the government's hands, along with lots and lots and lots of other things that also come in in various ways through other statutory means or maybe plain view searches or any number of ways in which a lot of which could involve in the incidental acquisition of information about somebody, a query is done. Let me put it to you differently. Let's just set aside all this complexity of FISA and 702 and just think about some database that some police department collects where they manage to digitize and put everything into a master database from all the officers, presumably lawful searches, some of which are search warrant based, but some of which are pursuant to various other exceptions and some of which will include some incidental stuff with other people's names and so forth in it. And if the sheriff's department has this sort of master database of all the stuff they lawfully got, and then whenever they're doing some new case 
one of the investigators decides to pop the name into that database of collection, it seems to me that would be an analogous situation. I, so I, I, I disagree. I, I mean, as we, as we talked about, as we talked about this, so first of all, I mean, that's Maryland versus King, which I actually think is wrongly decided, but that's a separate issue. Um, as we talked about this morning, the better analogy is the laptop, right? The well, I, lap- I did, I, to be clear, I didn't agree that that was a better analogy. I, we, we did right. bring that analogy up. I, th- I I think the better analogy is the laptop, where if I enter in the United States under the border search doctrine, right, the government is allowed to conduct a temporary inspection of anything on my person to make sure that it's not obviously illicit or harmful, right? That does not include, as the en banc Ninth Circuit has held, um, that does not include forensic searches of the laptop. Right, even though the laptop is properly in the government's possession at the moment it conducts the border search, the en banc Ninth Circuit has held, and the government did not ask the Supreme Court to review, right, that a forensic search of the laptop is a qualitatively different enterprise from the perspective of my expectation of privacy. Right. I don't think that's as good an analogy to the one I offered a moment ago, and here's why: uh, in that circumstance, it's all the same person. Their same privacy interests. We're not we're not introducing someone else's privacy interests. But more importantly, it's a, it makes a lot of sense to me that if the scope of the permission is to invade person number one's privacy to this degree and no further, then you've drawn a line there. I don't see that as being the same thing as this. I mean, I, I can see where it's somewhat analogous. Oh, can, can I use your own terms? Like, though? It feels like you've introduced one is introducing very different factors when it's searching of other people altogether, and all that's happening now is there's information that unlike what's in that laptop, the contents have not yet been in the government's possession. These communications are fully in the government's possession. But the it's scope the of you know, but but to your point about scope of permission, the scope of permission in the 702 context does not extend to targeting the U.S. person. And so if you're going to, if the, if your point about the laptop is that what makes that case different is the scope of the government search p- permission vis-a-vis the same person is very different at the border than it, like, you know, to do the surface inspection of the laptop versus to do a forensic inspection, I would suggest to you that that's actually exactly the scenario because in the 702 context, the government has zero permission statutorily, or I would argue constitutionally to target a U.S. person at time one. So I, I don't think it's right because the statute, sticking with the statutory permissions, it's it's clear that as things currently stand, unless the statute's changed, it's very much expected and authorized that under the safeguards, some amount of this querying is but they can't be targeted. Done. Right. And indeed, right, and indeed the statute requires targeted. if you're gonna if you're gonna target a US person, the statute specifically requires you to go get a warrant. We're back to the same terminological dispute and, and I feel like we should both not use the word targeting and we should find other ways to make sure we're not talking about it. Can I just say I, I think I think I think we have staked out our positions fairly clearly. <laughs> I, I think the larger the, the larger point that I suspect would help move this conversation forward as opposed to us just going in circles for another twenty minutes is Whatever you think the right answer is to how you calibrate the the rules, right? Like you and I, I think, agree that there have to be some rules for the second stage, let's say query, to avoid the term search, right? That, That you and I agree that at time two, when the FBI officer or the NSA agent is entering the U.S. person's information into the database, right, there have to be rules Limited. Okay. Good. So now the question is, right, 
who's going to who's going to make those rules, right? Are the rules going to be made by the agencies, right? Are the rules going to be made by the president in an executive order that binds the entire executive branch equally, or are the rules going to be made by Congress, right? Yep, we're we're, we're on the same page there. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if, if what they want to do is codify the existing rules, great. Like it's much better to have Congress make them than from. Is that the position of the Biden administration? I don't think so. I, look, I, we haven't even talked about the Biden. I don't, I don't think I know exactly what the Biden administration's position is. We can get Matt on the podcast and we can ask him. Yeah, well, um, I, you know, stay tuned. Yes, um, I know. That was, not, a, that was not an empty. That was not course, an empty. Every, the executive branch always, you know, for a long time listeners, you know the whole deal. Like the executive branch, no matter who the party is, what the issue is, they don't want a statute. You want to try to maintain flexibility. So you always say, we're going to self-police this thing with a PPD or an executive order or whatever. Yeah, but you're right. Like, so I think the positions are staked out nicely. We think nicely. Probably most listeners are like, <laughs> I, I couldn't follow anything you're saying. That made no sense. But but the uh, the thing that to watch for is will Congress on this key issue? First of all, will Congress even pay do anything? To this? Will they do anything? We both want them to do something. Yes. Um, bet, better to do it and make this change as as even Sharon sort of like, you know, the one vote position to do the most. Better to do that than to let the damn thing uh, collapse. Correct. Um, so it'd be it'd be wildly irresponsible if there's not a some agreement about what this codification should be and then renew it. But, um, you know, these days I wouldn't be shocked if it just fell victim to politics. That'd be something. I mean, that's certainly true. But but if I can just say, I mean, like the, you know, we've talked before about my admiration for the inner branch grand bargain, right, reflected in the original version of FISA in 1978. And one of the real, I think, geniuses of the original statute was Congress taking it upon itself, right, to legislate, basically, Bobby, to obviate or at least to preempt the constitutional questions, yep. right? You know, the most classic and obvious being whether a FISA warrant is even a warrant for Fourth Amendment purposes, right? And this is why we haven't got that ruling on whether there's a foreign intelligence exception to take because this, because because, right, because you've never needed it because the every court under the sun has assumed without deciding that even if a warrant were required, the thing that the FISA court issues is satisfaction of that requirement. Yeah. The Keith case basically said, "Look, this would do it." They were talking domestically, but same idea. So, and 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 the point on which I think you and I completely agree is that responsible legislation from Congress in the national security space can go a long way toward protecting, right, the executive branch 100%. from the specter of sort of constitutional enforcement by the courts in contexts that is that are going to be messier. Totally, it it is. It this is all about. How do you, over the long term, create stable tools for national security purposes? Well, in a rule of law free society, a stable tool is one that isn't constantly, you know, subject to friction. Might go away. You, you can I just clarify? You, you said you said you, you meant rule of law, comma free society, not rule of law hyphen free <laughs> yes, society. Yes, I certainly did. <laughs> that yes. would be a good episode. Meant, a a, a yes, rule of law, yes, a, and a, not either or. <laughs> a, a rule of law free society. A rule of law, comma free, comma. Uh, human flourishing, supporting, <laughs> comma, other good things, comma. Ampersand. Oh my God. Wait, should this be a rule of law free episode? <laughs> a rule of law free episode. Ooh, I like that. 
That's awesome. With no hyphenation, so we leave it up to the to the to the folks' imagination. Okay, that was great fun. Um, you know, Steve, I've been meeting with our one Ls lately, and in uh, more than a few mentioned that part of how they got interested in law school, and let alone UT, was listening to us. I know it's uh, kind so of scary. I, I think we should acknowledge here, in case there's some future law students or or maybe some current lawyers who need to hear it. Um, you know, our original one of our mini goals for this show, and we started off whenever it was was to show that people can really disagree on important stuff and then go have a beer and talk about HR's kids and, and be, you know, the dearest friends. And uh, as you can see, we, we totally disagree about some of this. Like, No, we don't. Yes, we do. No, we don't. We're passionate about it. Don't you deny it. Um, and and that means nothing for how much we love each other and, and, how much, and how much we hope that the back and forth helps you guys you know, sharpen your own views, but you probably think we're both lunatics and that's fine too. Um, no, but, but also, I mean, it's, and, and it's also worth underscoring that like, I mean, you and I actually agree to like 98% of the answer here. Right. Yeah. And like and the last the case, right. Right. And like the last 2% is important. Right. But like, if we got to the first 98%, you and I would both be quite happy. We, uh, you know, we made the mistake when we, when we aspired to set up lots of disagreement on the show, we got, co-host here who share a commitment to that rule of law comma free society um, <laughs> if you're into that then you're going to get a lot of agreement about a lot of our stuff it's a little bit like how students who are only learning about law from the casebook think that like every legal matter must be so titanically in equipoise with such high stakes that the law ends up be feeling super indeterminate it's like Y'all realize we're only giving you the cases that are like that. Right. The, the edge, yeah. law, law school's about edge cases. Legal practice is often not. Yeah, 100%. All right. Should we um, lighting around on the rest? Yeah. I mean, I think we, I would actually like to talk about the Trump 14th Amendment question in some detail so we can save that for next time. It's not, it's yeah, not too urgent. That, I will just say, for, what did that be, December? Indeed. Um, I will just say that actually the, the smartest thing I've seen about this is what Rick Hassan wrote, which is basically like, you know, um, the problem here is not that there aren't good arguments in support of Trump being disqualified. The problem is, is that like, it'll be a mess either way. And sometimes it's better. Sometimes, I mean, Rick's point is that sometimes it's better for the law to be clear than for the law to be right. Um, and this actually strikes me as one of those. We'll, we'll talk about it. But the, I, I, for folks who are sort of curious, I would encourage you to to read what Rick wrote, I think, in Slate about this. Yeah, but I mean, I haven't read Rick's piece, but he's generally really smart on the stuff. And I certainly, when I've been asked about this, like I was at Texas Tribune Fest recently, mm. um, like there's, there, I'm happy and you and I will talk about the legalities because that's kind of our job. Um, whether the case can legally be made is not the same as a full uh, serious assessment of yes. what would happen if you made that stick somewhere like right. what what then and that's that's not a legal interpretive question no i i i will just say something that you know i i'm happy to not not request you to weigh in on but if you know i would much rather trump lose fair and square in all 50 states being in the ballot being on the ballot in all 50 states than lose having been kept off the ballot in enough states where he can complain that he was cheated i th- i think that it, in terms of my my estimate of where the safety and health of our society lies you've got to be right about that um all right so we'll save that for for december <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> 2027. Um, we, all right, we, we were broadcasting we, while on the run from our secret location. 
Seriously, uh, especially me. Um, but- yeah, I'll go with you, man. <laughs> Come on. If it, if it got so bad you had to go into hiding, I'm driving. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, Listeners can chime in with uh, recommendations about where we go. Um, I'm going. To, I'm going. To, I'm going to Western Massachusetts, obviously. Um, <laughs> so, um, so let's let's quickly do some frivolity and then let's go to sleep. Yeah. Okay. We'll do the Scottish preview next time. Also. Oh yeah. The, the Supreme Court term starts on Monday. Yay. Um, <laughs> just just really really quickly, I will say I, I actually think the real big theme for the the upcoming term is the sort of the 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 series of battle points between the middle of the court, so the Chief Kavanaugh and Barrett, and the Fifth Circuit. I mean, like, as at, at least where we stand as we're recording this, a remarkable percentage of the biggest cases the court's going to have this term are cases out of the Fifth Circuit, where the Fifth Circuit went, at least in my view, perhaps even further than this current court wants to go on all kinds of stuff. It's going to be fun to talk about that one as it unfolds. All Wee. of all right, uh, we want to do two quick. Well, we should save Ahsoka until you're caught up because yeah, okay, yeah, my I'm favorite three thing, episodes in. Got you're you're, you're not up to my favorite thing yet, which is we finally meet. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, I know, I, I know what it's got to be. So he who but, must not be named. Uh, does he have blue skin and red eyes? Woo! Um, <laughs> I can't wait to catch up on that. All right, so you and I are both we can't best Star Wars character that. ever. Thank you, Timothy Zahn. Sorry. Uh, I, you know, on your recommendation, I read those books. Loved them. Terrific. They're fantastic books. I actually, um, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I just started Air of the Empire over again. You know what? One of the blessings I find about being in my 50s is uh, there's like all kinds of books I know I love, but I can't yeah. remember a damn thing about <laughs> what it. What happened? Well, this is great. I know I'm going to enjoy reading this. Guaranteed. The reviewer is very reliable. All right. No, so our, we were going to really quickly talk about um, six. six and you musicals. You and I are both going to see six, the musical, next week. I'm very excited. All right, Bobby, here's I, I promise you this was coming. On the spot, can you name in order the six wives of Henry VIII? Okay. Um, or do you at least I, remember the mnemonic for the for how they how no, their relationship? I, I, I don't know the mnemonic. Let me let me see if I can do this. I did I did resisted the temptation to cheat. I could have, but I did not. As we'll well done. To, it'll about to be apparent. So obviously, uh, Catherine uh, Aragorn. Um, Correct. Um, Aragon. Aragon. Yes, yes, sorry. sorry Aragorn, that's my, that's my Aragorn is, is Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a great person. If, if, if Catherine of Aragon were from Aragorn, that would be a very different Catherine kettle of, of fish. Catherine of Aragorn, daughter of Aragorn of Aragorn. <laughs> I mean, that would be, that would, that would really change our narrative a little bit. Oh my God. Cro- crossover episode. Sophia the First. Okay, so um, I know you got that reference. I did get that reference. Sophia the First. Is it quick? Quick note on Sophia the First. Is it not the case that her voice, Sophia's voice, is uh, the younger daughter from Modern Family? Ariel Winter. I I don't know her name. I should because she's she's wonderful. Um, I'm pretty sure the younger sister. Wow. I. You know what? You must be. You must be right, and I never it never occurred to me. I knew you would appreciate that because I knew yeah. that you, like me, would be familiar with both. Yes, uh, Sophia the First and Modern Family. Hundred percent. I'm okay, finding so out. Catherine, of course, is superseded, if you will, by Anne Boleyn. That Indeed. much I know for sure. Yes, now, the first two, the first two are the easy ones. Yes. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'm not sure about the order. I definitely know Jane Seymour's in there, and Catherine Howard's in there. I think Catherine Howard's at the end, and that's like the the one it kind of goes the best with. And then there's Ooh, uh, Bobby. Oof. What's her face? Am I wrong about that? Did I have it all wrong? You have oh, no, Catherine. Jane, oh, no, I got it. I got it. Jane Seymour was next after Anne. Correct. 
and 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 he loved her. She dies in childbirth. Uh, but but childbirth with the Edward. Ed, right. Okay. Yeah. This is what. Right. Though the whole point. Right. So so yeah. Catherine produced no heir. Right. And produce or no, Catherine produces Mary. Right. Um, and produces and produce Elizabeth. Elizabeth right? the oldest child. Right. Well, no, Mary's the oldest child. Catherine came before Anne? Uh, yes, no, Catherine, of, Catherine of Aragon. So Catherine of Aragon is first, right? And with Catherine, Henry has um, Mary Tudor, who will become Queen Mary the first. Yes. Right? Right? Yep. Anne Boleyn is second. Okay, with I'm sorry. Anne, Catherine sorry. Okay. With Anne, Henry has Elizabeth, right, who will succeed Mary as Queen Elizabeth the first. And there's right? Catherine. Then there's Jane Seymour. With then there's Edward. Jane Seymour with Edward. And and, then, and, the, and the whole sort of, you know, the, the reason why Henry loves Jane Seymour is because she finally produced a male heir. Right. And then is it Catherine Howard after that? Nope. Then we have, then we have the Cleves. And it's Anne of Cleves. Anne and of the Cleves. portrait. Yep. And the, and the whole portrait thing. And then yep. Catherine Howard. Is yes. That, that, and, then Kath, and then Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr. Okay. That I did not have. All right. Well, obviously, I did not know this stuff. So the mnemonic. I, so I the, should before watching this musical. Well, so the mnemonic, which which I will say I knew before listening to the musical, but now you, you can't get out of my head, is divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Oh, Okay. So, right, uh, Catherine was divorced, Anne was beheaded, Jane Seymour died, right, Anne of Cleves was divorced, Catherine uh, Howard was beheaded, Catherine Parr survives. What insanity. Um, Okay, so I'm I'm told this is a good one. I've not listened to music. I'm psyched about it, I think. Well, you haven't listened. No, no. Do you know the conceit at all? I just know it's kind of in some way told from their perspectives, right? Yes, Okay, I will not. I will not tell you. I will not say yeah, anything. Don't tell me anything else. I'm just going to okay. experience it. Um, it's a little. It's a little campy, but in some fun ways. Okay. All right. I'm in. I'm ready. Um, how about a quick NFL compliment to our musical discussion? Uh, um, the Miami, the Miami Dolphins, best team ever, or is it too soon? <laughs> are they even the best Miami Dolphins ever? Come on, no way. <laughs> I will just say. I mean. Two is is my fancy league quarterback, so I want to believe. (laughs) Um, There was a moment on Sunday where I was really kind of hoping they'd go for the record. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they didn't. Um, I thought it was, I think, in a graceless age, it's nice to see somebody take a knee before without continuing to beat down somebody else. That was nice. Uh, Do you know? Do you know? Do you know the single game NFL scoring record by a team? Seventy-three, right? No. And yes, and do you know who did it? Did they do it to the Giants? So no, it was done, it was the Bears against the Redskins in the 1940 NFL Championship game. Oh, that I would not have guessed. That. It actually is amazing that the NFL game has not gotten more out of control than that. Right? I mean, so so you know, it's actually I mean, what's really interesting is that it's actually really rare. I mean, the the Dolphins were only the I think what the fourth team ever right to score 70 or more points in the first since 1966 i mean like it actually yeah, it does, you would it think, does not get out of control much in the nfl what do you know the i don't know if it's still the right it's got to still be the record you know that what i think is the college 222 to nothing uh, do you remember who it was georgia tech against cumberland yes. and and right the most random ass piece of trivia from that game is the coach of Georgia Tech. Do you remember who the coach of Georgia Tech was in that game? Hold on. I'm walking off screen to see if I still have. Da, 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 da. All right, you're going to love this. 
I got all kinds of stuff here. It's rescued from childhood. You see here. Strange but true sports stories. Ooh. By Howard Liss. Illustrations by Joe Matthew. This was. It's got an inscription from one of my elementary school buddies. It was a birthday present. That's pretty cool. And it is from nineteen. Uh, Can I get some love for knowing it was Georgia Tech against no. the Cumberland Bulldogs? Uh, I, I'm so pleased. So this is from 1976, and uh, let's see if I can find it. Mismatch. It's got to be it. We're going to open it up. <laughs> Enjoy. Is that going to tell you who the coach is? No, I just wanted you to see the drawing. Oh, yeah, I see the drawing. And okay. everyone at home can hear the drawing. All right, Bobby, the coach was a guy named John Heisman. Ah, yeah, there it is. Tech was coached by the great Johnny Heisman. Uh-huh. That's amazing. All right, one more question for you on this nerdy nerdy path we're going down. So, speaking of old college sports, do you know which two elite academic institutions played the first ever intercollegiate baseball game? Well, I'm going to have to go on a limb since you're asking if it was one of them, Andover. Andover? I mean, sorry, wait, where'd you go? Remember the part 15 minutes ago where you said we love each other and we're friends and all that stuff? You're dead to me, Chesney. Andover. Are you kidding me? <laughs> all right, everybody. On that note, by that the way, it was, it, it was Amherst and Williams, and Amherst won 73 to 32. So take oh, man, I bet you I'll never let them forget that. And by never. the way, where's the 10 run rule? What, what was the score? In 1859, I don't think there was a 10-run rule. Yeah, the country was... All right. You know what? I think we've, I think we've lost the thread. Um, All right. Did we go with a rule of law uh, free? A rule episode? of law free. A rule of law and punctuation free episode. <laughs> and punctuation. Yeah, that's even better. Awesome. Uh, that was a good one. Was it? <laughs> that's up to yeah. you, listeners. He is at, that, that's usually what Bobby says after we sign off, but we haven't signed off yet. So let's sign off. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, thank you for listening to our September episode. Bobby, maybe for October we'll try two episodes. Hey, what are you, what are you doing next Monday afternoon? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to Chicago. Come on, man. <laughs> uh, where, by the way, you would think Chicago in October, I'd get a break from this Fakakta heat. It's going to be 85 in Chicago next week. Really? What hey, the hell, um, Chicago? By next weekend, Texas OU weekend, we're all going to be up in Dallas watching Texas crush OU. And they're expecting a high of like 81 that morning. And uh, like the morning low is like 62. So I'll believe it when I feel ah. it. We're not there yet. It was 96 today. Yeah. All right, y'all. Stay safe the, the and cool. The globe is warm. Uh, the globe uh, is very warm. You just, you just stepped on my line. I was about to say, oh, stay, safe, stay safe and cool out there. Adios.